As I said in episode 900, my update about dropping this podcast back to one a week for a while for health reasons, I'm going to be sharing brand new episodes only on Mondays for a while. I'm going to use my usual Wednesday and Friday slots to reshare some excellent older episodes. What follows is one of those interviews. Anyway, so those are the three rules. <laughs> be good, get power, don't do stupid things to mess up your life. <laughs> Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. I was driving from D.C. to Vermont the other day, and pride opened sometime in Billy Wimsatt's busy schedule. I sat with him in his house in Northampton, Massachusetts, to talk about his career and his books and his current projects, including the Movement Voter Project, which is working to empower community action groups across the swing states in advance of the 2020 election. On LinkedIn, Billy calls himself the chief ideas officer of Game Changer Labs and the president of Game Changer Networks and Movement Voter Project. But what he really is is a notable serial political entrepreneur, author, and activist. As he puts it in his book, Please Don't Bomb the Suburbs, his story is like a Where's Waldo of movement evolution over the past couple decades. I much enjoyed our conversation and hope you will listen. So, after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Billy Wimsat and the Movement Voter Project, and many other things. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Hi, Billy. Hi. How are you? Good. Are we starting? <laughs> We're starting. Okay. Now, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Wow. Sure. I'm Billy Wimsett. I was born in Chicago. I'm 46 years old. I grew up in a neighborhood called High Park, which the Obamas made famous. Like, very fascinating neighborhood, like black and white. Um, I went to the private school where the Obamas sent their kids, and I went to the public school where R. Kelly went. And this was in the 80s when hip-hop was a thing. So I was breakdancing, graffiti, et cetera, was my life, and got politicized watching one group of friends from private school get into drugs and get sent to like Europe and, you know, having wonderful lives and one set of friends getting tracked into the criminal justice system. And I understood at an early age just how wrong that was and and just was angry about basically racism and angry at the kind of hypocritical liberal white people who thought they were wonderful, but like were somehow not wonderful. Or were allowing these kind of things to happen in their country. Yeah. So I was kind of like burning with anger about that and about the prison system. And I got into writing, I wrote a book called Bomb the Suburbs. 
in the 90s. It was a, kind of the first book written by a graffiti writer. So I kind of toured around the country. And in the course of doing that, I, I did a hitchhiking tour around the country in the 90s. And I met all these activists. And I was like, oh my God, there's a whole network of of activists all over the country that no one has kind of added up into more than the sum of their parts. And so and I wrote another book called No More Prisons, and I got hired by Rock. I was, I was kind of like a journalist who was writing about the movement. I was writing for all the rap magazines about race and politics. And, and so I got hired by Rock the Vote as their national talent scout to spend a year going around the country finding the best young activists. In the course of doing that, I was like, why hasn't someone made a list of these people in groups? Aren't there people in D.C. who care about these things? Isn't Who's there a, coordinating this whole yeah, thing? <laughs> like, where, Where's the brain of... of yeah. And so I made a list, and that became a book called The Future 500. A bunch of friends and I started saying, let's, let's be systematic in trying to support all these groups around the country and work with some actors and donors to start getting them some funding. I had no interest in big P politics at this time. Like, I didn't even vote when I worked for Rock the Vote. You know, I was just, it just seemed completely irrelevant to my life. So what was interesting to me was grassroots organizing and grassroots politics. All that kind of changed in the year 2000. I was living in Raleigh, North Carolina. This was, of course, a big election year, (laughs) which I totally wasn't paying attention to. I was traveling around the country speaking about the prison industrial complex. And lo and behold, one of my interns comes in a couple weeks before the 2000 election and said, hey, it looks like they're going to double the size of the Wake County Jail, which was our jail in Raleigh. And A, I didn't know it was happening. Here's a guy that wrote book, No More Prisons. They're about to double my county jail. (laughs) Didn't know that was happening. Two, it was a ballot measure. It's like, okay, what do we, oh, I guess we have to vote. (laughs) We have to to get people to vote to stop them from doubling this jail. So we had an emergency meeting. 20 people in my living room started a fake organization called Citizens for Safety, <laughs> right? And Who can be against that? Yeah, we, we spent $1,000 printing signs that said, schools yes, jails no, because there was a school ballot measure, a jail ballot measure. So someone like told us, like, okay, you go to the churches at this time and flyer them and the, here are the polling places. So this is my first election. And election night, we lost. We were outspent like 200 to 1, <laughs> you know, something. We came close. Yeah, yeah. They, they doubled the jail. It wasn't until a couple years later that I realized, wait a minute, Bush won Florida, I mean, quote unquote, by 537 votes. If my friends and I had gone to Florida instead of North Carolina, <laughs> we could have actually, and this is when, you know, the Iraq war and... You might change uh, the, the direction of the country. Yeah, yeah, or any of us could have, yeah. right? You know, these groups that we were finding around the country, there was this one group in New Mexico called Sage Council, which was this native-led group. They were trying to fight the biggest developer in Albuquerque who was trying to build a road over the petroglyphs, which is native sacred site, right, to his exurban development. So these native groups are fighting this, like, come to find out, eight of the nine people in the city council are getting money from the developer. So is the mayor. So they're like, what do we do? Oh my God, we have to get rid of these people, right? So they organize. And over the course of five years, they flipped four of their opponents on the city council. They got a bunch of their own people elected to the school board. And the 2000 election, they turned out like 3,000 unlikely Native and Latino voters. 
Al Gore won the state of New Mexico by 366 votes, right? So by working on their local issue, they accidentally (laughs) flipped their state at the federal level. And I was like, wait a minute, what if they had been in Florida or we had been in Florida? And that's when it hit me, A, that regular people can change huge elections and that there is a huge difference between the parties actually, you know, that, that Al Gore would have been like not great on a lot of things, but he wouldn't have taken us into Iraq. He wouldn't have done these two Supreme court appointments that got us citizens united and everything went downhill from environmentally. He was wildly different than Bush, for example. Yeah. So that's when I was like, okay, my whole generation of, hip-hop people and activists and stuff have not been paying attention to this national politics thing. And so so we started something called the League of Pissed-Off Voters, which was basically our way of organizing ourselves. And we made our own local pissed-off voter guides. Um, and the first one was done by this woman, Shauna Sassoon, who was a waitress in New Orleans, who made Shauna's pissed-off voter guide. This was in 2003. And she she just said, like, this candidate is, like, full of shit. You know, like, like just real talk. And she printed out, like, a thousand of them. And suddenly they were all over New Orleans. People, like, love, it was like wildfire. Like, everyone wanted Shauna's pissed off voter guide. And we were like, let's replicate this. Let's have people do these personal homemade voter guides all over the country. So that was the League of Pissed Off Voters. Oh, you asked my bio. I'm going slow. Anyway, so the, I did that for five years. I think you're going at a good pace. Okay. It's interesting. Um, <laughs> I did that for five years. For Pat, five years, you did League of Pissed Off Voters. Yeah, it became the League of Young Voters because people wanted to give us funding. Similar to <laughs> problems with like name, naming something Bomb the Suburbs. <laughs> it might sell more, but it also could close the door here or there. Yeah, yeah. well... So, I mean, the punchline is I then wrote a book called Please Don't Bomb the Suburbs 15 Years Later. (laughs) Don't take me too literally. (laughs) Well, it's like like bombings for graffiti. Anyway, people don't get it. It was like before the Oklahoma City bombing and the, you know, it was funny before there were a lot of big bombings. So, and also the suburbs have changed. The suburbs used to be white flight and now they're like increasingly where communities of color and poor communities are getting pushed out of the cities too. So... We have to organize the suburbs. Like the the, the real thing and is the swing vote in national elections, congressional elections. They're totally very, they're the battleground. Yeah, we have to we have to love the suburbs and organize <laughs> the suburbs. They're like our people are there. I did that for five years. I passed it on. I worked on the Obama campaign. I ran Obama's youth operation in Ohio, and then went to work with with Green for All, which was Van Jones's organization before he went into the White House, and then. After he came out of the White House, um, I helped him and a woman named Natalie Foster start Rebuild the Dream, which kind of evolved into his Dream Corps organization. I was kind of like the political director for that. And I kind of, during that time, started, I love your your theme is political entrepreneurship, because... Because you are an example of that. You're starting starting these things, you're working with other people to start these things. And let me ask you a question, like, what do you think the characteristics are of a strong political entrepreneur okay wait i want to tell you the next chapter of the story because it's kind and then of you can use it to illustrate yeah yes, yeah exactly ahead. sure because i realized i probably played some role in like starting 20 or 25 things most of which died right <laughs> and i realized that and that's entrepreneurship in a lot of cases yeah in the, in the for-profit world in the non-profit world yeah the political world yeah, yeah. And I realized that the thing that I love most, that I kind of am most maybe suited to, is recognizing and incubating new ideas. 
I may not be the best person always to like build it out and and run it, you know, in the long term. I love the ideas. I love the I love visionaries. I love people with ideas. I love encouraging them. Yeah. You know, I love creating and iterating. It's exciting. <laughs> yeah, it's and and you know, I was an artist right before. I was like I was like, you know, there's plenty of talented graffiti artists or journalists or writers. We need more people who are bringing the characteristics of an artist to the political space and to changing the world. At heart, I'm really still an artist. So the organization I started then was called Game Changer. And the premise of Game Changer is our movement is has a lot of great things, but like we have to evolve. Our kind of initial flagship project was called the Crazy Ideas Bank. And the tagline was crazy ideas someone else should do. Because <laughs> everyone has you know, some crazy ideas someone else should do. So actually what I was supposed to be doing instead of Movement Voter Project was helping people share and support lots of crazy ideas. But what happened was, well, first of all, I, I helped this one friend of mine, Leah Hunt Hendricks, kind of pose that to her, like, I bet you have 10 crazy ideas someone should do. And she's like, actually, I have one crazy idea and I want to do it, which is to build a donor community to fund movements. And I was like, oh my God, that's brilliant. Like, how can I help you? And I ended up spending some years helping her doing that. And then in the court, and Is I was- that Solid Air? That's Solid Air. Yeah. Oh yeah, Solid Air. I forgot <laughs> to mention the name. Um, and I haven't then, talked to her yet. She's someone uh, I want yeah. to. Yeah. yeah, yeah. She's a great person. A lot of people to. mention her. Yeah. I fell in love with Solid Air and I was kind of like the political person for Solid Air. And then I started this other thing called Vote Mob, which was like flash mobs for voting, which is people in, in our sector always complain, ah, oh, all the money comes late, you know, it, it's not building anything. I'm like, okay, the money comes late, let's build something to catch late money and have it be kind of optimized in, in field organizing. So Vote Mob is like young people flash mobs for voting. Anyway, I was doing that in 2014, and this is kind of another one of those like chocolate plus peanut butter equals Reese's Pieces moments where I was advising Solidaire donors on their movement giving, like in the wake of Ferguson, in the wake of the Flint water crisis. And at the same time, I was doing Vote Mob in 2014. It was like the Senate map. It was like Kansas and Iowa and Alaska and all these, all these states that don't have a lot of progressive infrastructure. You know, we'd hire like, hundred people in Kansas or something. People were like, are there any groups in Kansas I should fund in addition to that? And I was like, yeah, actually there's Sunflower and Kansas People's Action. And so anyway, so I made a list. I made like a Google Doc yeah. <laughs> of all the groups I knew in the battleground states, circulated in like hundreds of thousands of dollars people gave to those groups without even knowing them. I was like, oh my God, this is a gap. So many of the best organizations that get out the vote are small community groups no one's ever heard of in states where people don't live <laughs> who are giving the money. So I said, you know, if we can create a really good vetted list of these groups for each election cycle. So Movement Voter Project was born or movement.vote. And it's basically a guide to the best local groups in the country. And then we, we have like funds, we have like a youth fund and a immigrant rights fund and a Muslim fund and, you know, yada, 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 climate fund. How, how many groups are on your list? Um, about 500. 500 um, across 50 states, 10 a state? 
Uh, um, but I'm sure it varies usually. It's not quite 50 states. It's like 45, 46. And we actually focus much more deeply in in the battleground states and in the states. So what year is it that you start Movement Voter? It was called Movement 2016. At first it was in 2016. And then we like slowly um, changed the name to Movement Voter Project. Got it. Was that during the primary season of 2016 when Trump is coming up and yeah, and Hillary yep. and Sanders are battling it out? And yeah. Uh, that's part of the value, especially now. It's like, oh my God, the Democratic primary where people are incentivized to focus on Iowa, South Carolina, and like all 50 states to get the delegates. Meanwhile, Trump gets to focus on the five states he needs to win, you know, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Arizona, Florida. Put a couple hundred million there. Yeah, yeah. and we're all over the place. So a lot of what we're trying to do right now is get people to focus on building up the progressive infrastructure in every corner of every county of those five states so that whoever the nominee is, there will be an organized local force to get out the vote and to build up the the progressive organizing infrastructure for its own sake in those communities, you know? Is uh is that a nonprofit? It's a 501c4. Yeah. Um so yeah. Yeah. Political nonprofit sort of category. Yeah. yeah. And we're actually starting a pack so that we can And how big of an organization is that? Like who works there? What's the Oh, good question. Team? Oh yeah, this is entrepreneur <laughs> talk. Um so well so the first cycle in 2016 we moved 2.5 million and we had me and like a handful of other people who are basically contractors um so it's a pretty pretty lean operation but you're you're tying to existing organizations so you're sort of capturing money and moving it to is this, is this what's happening well yeah so so what what mostly happens is we advise donors Right. Some people give through the website. I mean, most people who are giving $100 or something give through the website. But honestly, most of the money that's moved is people who want to move big amounts of money. I guess the market gap we're filling is that unless you're like super wealthy and going to hire a staff to help you give away your money, most people give reactively. Right. That's like you're getting hit up either on email or if if you're on enough like donor lists, you get calls from politicians. It's all reactive. So we're helping people be proactive and saying, where do you want to give? So what's your ideal donor that you're looking for? Well, so now the word is getting out a lot. So people are coming to us and they're saying, Hey, I heard you help people for free. My family has say a family foundation. Um, and we normally give to like land trusts or the arts, but wow, um, we actually really care about voter registration and young people and people of color getting out the vote in different states this year. So um, we heard you can help help us, and we basically act as a free program officer to help identify what do they care about, what issues, and then we'll basically make them a docket and say like, this seems like based on our research of the groups and what's going to most fit your interests. And then they'll say, no, I don't like that group. You know, we'll go back and forth until we find something they really like. And then we help them move the money. We encourage people to give money directly to groups. You don't need the credit. We don't need the credit. We don't need to touch the money. You you want to just make it happen. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, and what, which is part of why people trust us because we're not, we're not taking a cut on either side. What is an organization that you really, 
love to get funded? Like, give me some examples. Oh, yeah. Of who is it in Wisconsin that's making yeah. a different or difference? Or, yeah. Yeah. So, so two organizations just came to mind. One in Wisconsin and. So there's a a phenomenal group that a lot of people know now called Black Voters Matter, right? Which um, was started by um, some friends of mine, Latasha Brown and Cliff Albright. It was just a little project they started in Georgia, and they were like, "Hey, no, everyone is ignores the Black Belt rural counties. If Black voters voted in some of these." counties in high enough numbers, they could flip a lot of seats. So they flipped a seat in Georgia just with no no money, you know, and then the Alabama special election was coming up. And Latasha's from Alabama. She's from Selma. And she had run for for statewide school board. Mm -hmm. I mean, she's an incredible political entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. When she was 28 in Alabama, came 800 votes short of winning statewide as a young black woman in Alabama. I mean, she's amazing, right? Mm, yeah. And she had gone on to do other things, was living in Atlanta. So I call her up. I was like, hey, this special election in five weeks, what are you thinking about it? And she's like, it's on my heart. I want to do something about it. And I was like, well, what if we get you like, I don't know, ten, twenty thousand $20,000? Like, why don't you make a list of all the little grassroots groups in little counties that no one else is going to fund and no one's heard of and give them like thousand dollar mini grants and, and support them to do vote work on their own terms. And she was like, she was like, I'm getting in my car right now. <laughs> We're going, I'm going to Alabama. We're going to do this. Yeah. And she calls me the next day. She's like, okay, I've got 10 groups. I've never heard anyone so excited about the idea of getting a thousand dollars. And it was because all these like, incredible community leaders were being completely ignored by the Doug Jones campaign. The story in Alabama was like, black voters aren't excited about Doug Jones. Reporters were going down there. And then black voter turnout was through the roof. How did it happen? Well, and we ended up with a bunch of our friends and partners, ended up moving them about $200,000. And they and Woke Vote, which is another incredible group in Alabama, hired 600 canvassers in 17 counties and regranted to 35 other mini organizations in five weeks, right? And black voter turnout was through the roof. And their message was not vote for Doug Jones. And here's why their message was, it's about us. And that was very important. So, and I was like, Latasha, what do you, what do you call this thing? She's like, black voters matter. I was like, oh my God, that's amazing. Mm -hmm. You know? And so the right, person, the right idea, the right moment. And then we've been really proud to help seed them expanding regionally throughout the South and and also going to the North as well. That's one of my favorite groups. And then in Wisconsin, there's a really bunch of really cool groups. But just to name one that's doing something pretty different, it's called Wisconsin Citizen Action, which sounds like a kind of like a perg or something. Uh, yeah, yeah, like a kind of boring group from the 80s or something. They have this really cool model because it's like, how do you scale organizing statewide to all these small cities like Eau Claire, La Crosse, and Appleton? They're like, we can't afford to do it. They came up with this model they call organizer co-ops. You know, they find a good organizer. It turns out if you can get 250 people in a place to each do a monthly donation of $20 each, that's enough to pay for an organizer, right? They'll send an organizer to a town or recruit an organizer in town and say, go get 
250 people Fund to yourself. sign up yeah. and like it's like a barn raising for organizing <laughs> and then those people own the organizer it's like this is our organizer we pay you you know so yeah. it, that's a really cool model so we're trying to help them start co-ops in every corner possible <laughs> of wisconsin stories like that are very inspiring and to see that kind of thing get built up is very powerful on the other hand i sometimes think this is the job of the democratic party that is an organization supposedly with precinct committees in every precinct and county officers and state parties and a national party. What do you think about the fact that we're doing so many of these things, indivisible, everything else outside of the party, outside of a, an infrastructure that probably in some ideal world would work correctly to do yeah. local politics all the way up? Yeah. I, I think there's an interesting psychological component, which is like once something is like, a place of power, it attracts people who are like power seekers, power seekers, yeah. as opposed to people who are like do gooders. Mo yeah. <laughs> who are like motivated by like passion and changing the world or saving their communities. Right. And so, so I think there's maybe some self selection that goes on to make it kind of like a shell as opposed to a vibrant space. Yeah. You know, I think, I mean, I've seen those sort of people attracted to both, but I know what you mean also like anything that sits around for a while seems to ossify or something yeah 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 that no there, mm. there's something really to that which is like people I, have their spot they have their title they they start to have their relationships in the backs that they scratch and things like that yeah yeah and 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 we see this with with kind of every new cycle of movements it's like occupy comes along and people are like who the f are you and like i've we've been doing this work forever and then after a while, Occupy generates people who are like, and then they become a little bit entrenched, you know? And so it's like, it's like... Um, you need new revolutions, like the some of the founders would say. Yeah, like yeah. every couple of years, yeah. like, and we sometimes say every left flank needs a left flank, you know? <laughs> and every everyone is annoyed by their left flank, you know? And the, well, what annoys me is, is often they're the fights over very small differences. Yeah. 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 Yeah, but I wanted to ask you, yeah. uh, you say in your Please Don't Bomb the Suburbs book, you talk a little bit about movements and like defining them and just the, the kind of variety. Just give me some of your theory about uh. about movements. Wow, you actually read the book. <laughs> Nobody <laughs> reads books anymore. I read books. Wow, Nathaniel, I'm impressed. <laughs> the only books I've read since my kids have been born are Harry Potter and you know children's books. But I, I, think, I think... But isn't that a great excuse to read that kind of book? Yes. I mean, I've really enjoyed children for that reason. Yeah, there's, <laughs> there's a lot of movement building strategy and theory in these books. So the interesting thing about movements, I think, is like as critical as everyone thinks they are, I feel like they mostly haven't been taken very seriously. I feel like people either want to define them really narrowly as like, this is a movement and all that other stuff isn't. I mean, like this is a recycling movement in Duluth or <laughs> well, well, <laughs> what, no, what do you mean? It's like, like, what do you mean? First of all, what do you mean by a movement? Yeah. I define it really broadly, right? A movement is a group of people who share common values and are taking some united action, right? And I actually think movements can be really small and that's okay. You know, like like some people are like, well, that's not a movement. That's just people recycling in Duluth, right? Yeah. I actually think that is a movement. It's yeah. just a small 
very yeah. specific movement. Not everything is a civil rights movement. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that's an inspiring way to look at it. It's like you and I could get together. And start a movement. And start a movement. Yeah. And it would be a really small movement that's whatever. <laughs> but um, Unless but we it's worth get people something. to join into it. Yeah. It's valuable. Yeah. Maybe we'll get a third person, yeah. you know? I think it's really important, A, that it doesn't have to be the civil rights movement level movement to be a movement and to be valuable. And that people have to like love the the little movements that we have. And secondly, that the job of our generation now, all of us living, is to build a movement of movements. Our big job is to figure out how to knit all of our movements together into a movement of movements that's that's up to the scale of the the challenge that we face. And to somehow stick together enough that we can see ourselves as a big we. And of course, what I think you're talking about is progressive movements, because there's movements on the other side, too, yeah. that are countervailing or reactionary movements, yeah. right? You know, one of the questions I've asked a lot of people who are in the space of coaching or helping movements or trying to get them going is, like, how do you know your movement is right? How do you know you're on the right track? Because people on the other side think they're on the right track, too. I actually don't get into like the evaluative part of movements that much, you know, because but like, you know, you take the gay rights movement, it's been fast and transformative, slow in certain respects in people's lifetimes, but really fast in changing the mores of the country for the better. Yeah. Right. Like over the last 20, 50 years. Unbelievable. And still going. And to my value set, clearly good. But to a bunch of people out there, this is like a sign of the end times, right? Yeah. The truth is, like, I guess I don't think that much about the other side, except to sometimes admire their their tactics, and also to because like they, like Tea Party or something. They yeah. they sometimes know what they're doing. Yeah, they're sometimes really good at it. Yeah, they sometimes yeah. Copy from us. Yeah. I mean, if you've ever read The Purpose Driven Church by Rick Warren, it is one of the best books about organizing ever written. It's about how to build mega churches, and it's really brilliant and thoughtful. Um, Never read it. Oh, yeah. I think it's a must read about movement building. I've hitchhiked in enough cars with evangelical Christians and folks from quote unquote the other side who are like the most lovely, like caring people. Yeah. You know, I they love I, their children too. Yeah. I'm not into demonizing the other side. Our job is to build a beloved community that's so good that that we want to be part of it. <laughs> Cause I, I honestly most of our movements are so dysfunctional and toxic that we drive <laughs> we drive ourselves out of them. And we attack our own allies. Yeah. 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 We're I mean, we're really talented at that. What I most want to build is a beloved community that people want to be a part of um, and that attracts people, including people from the other side who see, wow, this is actually a place that really cares about people, cares about me. That's the big hard job we have because there's so much hurt and so much history and so much scars that people have individually and collectively. That That's the really, really, really hard part of the work. Well, you talked about like seeing all of these disparate groups without a central brain or something. I don't remember how you exactly put it. But in the years since you made that observation, what do you see changing? And who is making the change in coordination and leadership of 
the fleet of ships. The fleet of ships. The progressive movement has no brain is kind of like the thing that was like, oh. Yeah, there's, I <laughs> it think has it, lots of leaders is what I it think has. it's gotten a lot, lot, lot better in the last 20 years. I, it's evolved a, like dramatically in the last 20 years. There have been a lot of invisible people and efforts helping make that happen. I mean, like an example is Rockwood. Thousands of people have gone through Rockwood leadership trainings and hundreds of people, hundreds of like key leaders, you know, of movement organizations have gone through their their intensive leadership courses, you know, where you have you? Yeah. Where you learn both like how to be a better person and leader and what qualifies one how does one go to that training it's um how old do you have to be (laughs) there's a nomination process it's mostly people who who run significant organizations who are recommended by other people in the same space the beauty of it is it's it's really helped cross-pollinate people who are in like really different issues really different geographies People are more radical and more pragmatic and building relationships with each other as people, you know, and dancing and laughing and learning together goes a long way to like when there's an issue, we can call each other and we have some shared language. And what, then, what else besides Rockwood comes to mind? Yeah, I think there have been a lot of um, efforts to build alliances. Thinking about the evolution of like the climate movement, right? So essentially like 20 years ago, there were like big greens and then there were like the Sierra clubs of the world. Yeah. yeah. And there were like environmental justice groups who were like local frontline communities, mostly communities of color. And there was huge tension between those two around funding, around who gets centered. Fast forward to a couple of years ago, the creation of the People's Climate Movement, which is deliberately bringing together big greens, new online, like 350 org type groups, frontline organizing groups, and economic and social and racial justice organizations that didn't previously work on climate, but that have a base that's like, oh my God, we're going to be underwater. We have to care about this along with with jobs and, and everything else. So the people's climate movement is like, I'm sure it wasn't perfect, but it's like a DNA that's bringing together threading together, you know, it's like Jesse Jackson talked in the 80s about like, we need a quilt (laughs) that weaves all this stuff together. How do you think Sunrise Movement fits into that? I love Sunrise Movement. In addition to the the different pieces of quilt being woven together, they're like really new, interesting tactics that are, the term of art is momentum-driven organizing. It's like taking the mass protest movement and and bottling it of but bottling the formula for doing it, which is like you do a DNA front-loading process in the beginning. This is, do you know about this? This is like what Sunrise and Cosecha and... I, I mean, I interviewed Varshini. Yeah, Varshini. And um, also Thais from Cosecha. Oh, Thais, yeah. So, so I've, what I know is from talking to people who are running yeah. these groups and maybe a little bit some of the people who are coaching them, but I'm still learning. I'm, yeah. I'm early in this. It's, it's really smart because because normally what happens when there's like trigger moment is like people react to it, but we're not ready. So we we like kind of lose most of the people and, and energy. And part of how I see momentum is they kind of reverse engineer. They're like, okay, 
there's going to be trigger moments around climate. Yeah. <laughs> and let's harness them. Let's let's build the DNA first up front of what the movement needs to look like so that it can capture people and engage them immediately in something that's going to work instead of like something that's not going to work, <laughs> you know, which is so it's like it's really like professionalizing movement building to some extent, well, right? It's I that's a, that's a little w- that's a little crude way of saying it. Maybe. Yeah, I wouldn't say it's professionalizing it because because that has the connotation of like because you want it to be people driven, not yeah. Not, but there are experts in this, right? There yeah. are people with who've studied it, who have knowledge, who who have history, experience that they can share. It's essentially best practicing it, right? Part of why I'm like eh, professionalizing because. A lot of what they're doing, like a lot of the problem in our quote unquote movements is that they're too professionalized. That it's like you can only be part of them if you're like a staff person at a nonprofit organization. And part of what they're trying to do, and part of like Becky Bond and Zach Exley's book, um, Rules for Revolutionaries. Re- Rules for Revolutionaries is like, how do we build movements that mass volunteers can be part of and can lead? Like big movements in other countries are not staffed. So, and you need both, right? But how do you design movements really well to like intake and keep and develop volunteers at a mass scale, right? So, that's what Sunrise is for the climate movement. It's been really exciting and smart seeing them doing that. And their trigger moment was sitting in Nancy Pelosi's office and getting AOC to come to their sit in. But they'd been working for quite a while before that moment. Yeah, 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 to to build it and, you know, get it ready. And then it went from like 20 chapters to, you know, over 200. I think they're an enormous part of it. You know, I think they will tell you they are just one part. And It's a very big country. Another thing that's happening that's not as kind of like highly visible, which is kind of what I started talking about in the the people's climate movement, conversation, which is local community organizations, mostly in communities of color, incorporating climate into their core strategies and traditional environmental justice groups getting more and more sophisticated in building scale and all of these threads coming together. Anyway, I think Sunrise is one really important thread and there there are other threads that are not as visible that we have to kind of help and support them weave themselves together. I want to take you back to the question I asked before you're ready to, which was like, what makes a good political entrepreneur and what are the characteristics? What have you learned? You've now started a whole bunch of things, a whole bunch of things, and you've also helped other people start a whole bunch of things. What can you convey out of that experience? (laughs) I keep trying to duck your question. (laughs) I haven't like teased out what the secret sauce is. The importance of maniac visionaries is not to be underestimated. It's the combination of a person who cares passionately, who's ready to bleed for an idea. The right idea and kind of structure and whatever, the right timing, and then the right person, I guess, our team, and everything flows from that. Everything flows from that. And then they have to iterate a la the Lean Startup. When you think about yourself, what has been motivating you to keep doing this mm. for a couple decades? Mm. Why is this your road through life? I've never really considered doing anything else. From a very young age, I was really like 
upset by like racial disparities and also by like, I think I was in like fourth grade and I heard like nuclear weapons were pointed at Chicago and we might all die. I was like, what the fuck is going on with the grownups? You know, and then people are like, let's play baseball or let's, whatever. and I'm like, do you understand that like a nuclear weapon could like destroy Chicago? And just like on a like life spiritual level, I feel like very tuned into like life and my own life and other people's lives and all the life around me. And it's like, I don't take it for granted. It comes from a like very spiritual, I think, recognition of we are incredibly lucky to be like on a planet with life in this universe of dead planets, you know? Yeah. And like And it's precious. It's and, precious. And we should take care of it. You know. And we should stop being mean to each other. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like it's really hard for humans to to remember that. It does seem to me like there are people who are more or less born or early on made who feel this and ones who don't. There seems to be a difference between how Trump views the world, say, in a very selfish and how do I better myself, my family, my name, my glory, versus somebody who sees the pain. It's like abundance versus scarcity, love versus fear. These forces are really strong and really powerful. We all have all of them in us. Everyone has like good and bad impulses. I feel like I got lots of love and support as a child. Your good impulses ruled you to some to I most mean, extent. Yeah. <laughs> on a good day, you yeah. know. Yeah. Um, I read in, in that same book that I mentioned earlier, the, these quick, simple rules that you had. Be good, get power, and don't do stupid things. Right? Yeah, be good, get power, and don't do stupid to things to, to mess, mess up, up your life. Yeah, so just... <laughs> Yeah. As maybe as a to tie this interview off, yeah. explain what you're getting at there. Th- that sounds so like duh, simple. I mean, it's incredibly difficult and profound to put those three things together. Most people I deal with and work with are like really good people, and they don't really want power. The good people that I went to Yale with went to work for thirteen thousand dollars a year at a nonprofit helping with Latin American poverty. And the other good people who are more focused on career went and became corporate lawyers and amassed power. So the people who, who are more drawn to power tend to be less interested in being good. So basically what I preach, my gospel to good people, like I used to speak at colleges and I'm like, how many of you are going to business school or law school? You know, the people who came to see me, like, one or two hands would go up at a room of like 100 or 200 people. We've seen the bad things that power does. We're afraid of power. We don't want to have power over people. So I preach to those people, we need to get power because <laughs> otherwise it's just the assholes who are going to like <laughs> run everything who like don't care about it, anything. But, you know, like Trump is the archetype. But when you get power, you have to stay good. You have to like really focus on staying good. Yeah, as that's hard. Power, I think that's really which hard. Which is really hard, yeah. right? You get sucked into the, yeah. the, the general so that, way of doing that things. That alone is really hard. Yeah. We've seen so many people who are like trying to like do good and get power who either like financial, sexual, or saying stupid things mess up their life, right? Yeah. It's, if people can simply thread that needle... Anyway, so those are the three rules. <laughs> Be good, get power, don't do stupid things to mess up your life. One thing that you also talk about is sort of that 
both people and I think movements can be in upward or downward spirals. You read my book. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Daniel. You're welcome. What has been sitting in my mind, maybe not with those words, is that we here in the United States and maybe the world are in both right now as a country. We're in a huge downward spiral nationally, but so many positive spirals are also being seeded, growing in strength, making progress. So in those terms, are you optimistic or pessimistic about where we're going and what can we do to do things that we can be more optimistic yeah. about. No, we, we, we just have to like feed our upward spirals, <laughs> you know, f- for, for ourselves, for each other, and for our little movements and our movement of movements. That's what I try to do, and that's where I try to direct my energy is like, let's feed our good upward spirals. And, you know, I can't control the downward spirals, you know. And well, you got to fight some of them too, yeah. 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 And we have to do it strategically, like focusing on the upward spirals in Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Florida, Arizona right now is yeah. like, key. you know, yeah. is key for the future of the world, yeah. right? So I don't know if I'm either optimistic or pessimistic. I'm just focused on what needs to be done. We got to do God's work, you know? <laughs> so, um, yeah. Is there a question that I neglected to ask that you wish I had asked? Oh. Um, well, I want to have a whole big conversation with you and we're not on a podcast <laughs> to like really like think and strategize and scheme together about all this stuff. That would be, I'd be honored. To, and it's been great to have a chance to talk to you today. Anything else you want to say? Yeah. Well, it's interesting. Like nobody interviews me. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like when I was a graffiti writer, people were like, oh, this is so interesting. Like I want to like write my dissertation about this. Or when I was like writing books, like when I didn't actually know what I was doing, I was just like talking a bunch of stuff now i'm i finally have have actually like learned how to like build things (laughs) and i'm like i'm actually having a much bigger effect by an order of magnitude than i was before and it's i'm doing it much more quietly well you know what i would love to do is talk to you again also in a recorded fashion about that because i think we only touched the beginning of what's percolating in your brain uh, with all this experience cool i just want to thank you (laughs) so this is funny for people listening to the podcast i had no idea i was just heard some guy named nathaniel's coming to your house to do a podcast and i was like who who is this nathaniel i didn't realize you were nathaniel of ngp van and many other things and i'm like kind of in awe and i want to interview you now and, and, and ask you about like all your lessons learned. And I think it's really cool and and your vision and like, what can we do? I think it's so cool that you're doing this project of you as one of the kind of most successful political entrepreneurs alive, building this thing that all of us use among other things. It's really cool that you keep yourself learning and alive and active, you know, just, well, I mean, the reason I'm honestly doing this podcast is I started to discover how little I knew and how terribly uninformed I was about all of the things and the people doing this work. And so, you know, I'm almost 300 interviews in now and talking to people who, who are working so hard and so many of them so inspiring across so many different aspects of ideology and geography and technology and different you know modes of of trying to operate and make the country better 
it's a cool job. Wow. What, yeah. what, what are some of the things you're learning? The question that I kind of came into this with is how are we organizing to defeat Trump, right? He's such an outlier. One thing I really honor, even in its imperfection, is our democracy. And here's somebody who is the first actual major threat to it in American history, despite civil wars and horrible things the government has done and people have done. And so I wanted to know how are progressives organizing to fight that and how do we talk to each other? And so I've just been wandering around talking to people who are fighting that fight and are talking to each other and are at the tables at the move-ons and the Democratic Party and and the Sunrise Movement and, and you and the funders of this. And there's a lot going on. I've just begun that path. Wow. Yeah. Well, it's it's really cool that you're doing this and, and it's it's really cool that we get to go on this journey with you. So now I'm excited to be part of um, <laughs> your exploration. You're, you're part of it. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time today. Thanks, Billy. That was Billy Wimsat and the Movement Voter Project. He's at movement.vote. I love crossing paths with other progressive political entrepreneurs, and I look forward to seeing what impact Billy has now and in years to come. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at resistancedashboard.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. <laughs>